Certainly, again, may I extend also, as was done earlier in the announcements, as Alan shared those with us, it is so good for us to consider the great blessing of God toward each and every one of us. It is still the case, isn't it, that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variable, is neither shadow of turning. James chapter 1, verse 17. Indeed, as we've then assembled and gathered on this afternoon occasion, God has certainly been so terrifically good to each of us. Let's continue to think of and remember in prayer those that are ill, those that are sick and having difficulties in a various, varying and sundry ways in life. It is the case that tonight as we come to a less than the third one in this series of lessons on the book of Ezekiel, I hope that again you've already turned to that location in Ezekiel chapters 4 through 7. That'll be our consideration tonight. Let me say to you, if I may, as we turn to this next slide, an introductory one, in fact, that it certainly is fair to say that a study of one of the prophets, especially one of the major prophets, such as Ezekiel, offers its own set of challenges, certainly if it's to be considered in light of lessons as we're attempting to do. I certainly would say that it would be easy, if we are not careful, to be a little bit overwhelmed by not only the history of the book of Ezekiel, but the apocalyptic character of that book, it's my hope and my job as I attempt to share some of the main thoughts and guidelines of the book, and I'm convinced, as is true of all the other Old Testament books, that the text of Romans 15.4 speaks volumes. Whatsoever was written aforetime was written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. There are needful lessons to be found even in, in Ezekiel. Lessons that hopefully we each can consider and by them you and I can be drawn closer and nearer to the God who loves us and gave us this book of Ezekiel. I hope then in these chapters tonight, chapters 4 through 7, that we can continue where we ended our study on the last occasion. The first lesson of the series, we cast a spotlight on the person Ezekiel seeing the fact not only was he a priest, not only a prophet, but of course he was a powerful spokesman for God, and in addition, all that happened while he was a captive. In the year 592 B.C., Ezekiel was called by the God of heaven, and at that point, he was set forth on a powerful mission of proclaiming the great word of God to a people, so often rebellious, so often stubborn and hard-hearted, and may I say that as we come to these chapters tonight, God will elevate His message to capture their attention in a way that would truly be unforgettable. It is with that in mind. Let's then turn, if you would, to the fourth chapter of the book of Ezekiel. And tonight, as we look at chapters 4 through 7, one of the first orders of business, and notice this came immediately after God's commissioning of Ezekiel. God told him, you, whether they like it or not, proclaim the message. And now the first element that God gave him to preach, the first sermon, if you please, that God gave him to put forth was the one we shall now consider in the opening verses of Ezekiel chapter 4. If you'd like to perhaps embed in your mind the first half of Ezekiel 4, it'll be the message of the tile, T-I-L-E. You may ask, well, what is the tile and what does that have to do with Ezekiel and what does it have to do with God's message for the ancient people of Israel and Judah? And what might it have in bearing for you and for me today? It is the case as you give thought to the book of Ezekiel and from time to time, 
I will attempt to if I'm able to do it. The book of Ezekiel is very much a book, much like Revelation in the New Testament. It is intended, if possible, to be visualized. As powerful as it is to read it, if possible, we should imagine it. If possible, we should appreciate that what Ezekiel did is what these people saw. God told him to do something. Not just preach something, but to physically do something. When it comes to the tile, this is what Ezekiel was supposed to do. In fact, I'm going to move forward. We'll go back to that slide in just a moment. God told Ezekiel, Ezekiel, you take a tile. From your perspective and mine, this was a sizable chunk of material. The ancient Babylonians called it a brick. It's larger, though, than what you and I, at least in this country, would recognize as a brick. And God gave Ezekiel these specific and detailed instructions. Verse 1, Ezekiel 4. Thou also, son of man, take thee a tile and lay it before thee and portray upon it the city, even Jerusalem. That word portray means to inscribe. The prophet Ezekiel was told, you take a tile and you draw on it, inscribing and etching in its surface a layout of the city of Jerusalem. And you do so for the particular mission and message that's about to be set forth in the verses that follow. Lay siege against it and build a fort against it and cast a mount against it. Set the camp also against it and set battering rams against it round about. Moreover, take thou unto thee an iron pan and set it for a wall of iron between thee and the city and set thy face against it and it shall be besieged. And thou shalt lay siege against it. This shall be a sign unto the house of Israel. You could just imagine as day by day these people who were again captive and there by the river Kibar as they walked along and saw Ezekiel there etching and carving something into this tile. And soon the impression becomes clear. That's Jerusalem. I see an imprint of the temple. I see an imprint of the capital. I see an imprint of the other features of the city. It no doubt was very clear pretty quickly. Ezekiel is drawing Jerusalem. And as he did this day after day, day after day, God intended this to convey a message because you'll notice in verse 2, Ezekiel, you lay siege against it. Not only do you etch the city, but day after day, you set battering rams against it. You, in fact, come against it with armies and with elements and you portray an overwhelming conquering of the city. That's what he was to do. As you give thought to this, let us not forget, the time frame for this particular element was this. The city of Jerusalem had already been attacked. First, in 605 B.C., and Nebuchadnezzar had been victorious, but he hadn't completely destroyed the city. Eight years later, in 597 B.C., he came again, attacked it again, and again he was victorious, but didn't completely destroy it. He did carry away captives, and he did, in fact, carry away the nobles and those that were, in fact, the higher echelon of society. But notice, Ezekiel was called in 592 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar was going to come back one more time. Though the people didn't think that he would... God, in essence, was here through Ezekiel telling him, I'm guaranteeing it six years from now. God didn't give him a date, but it was to be in 586 B.C. Nebuchadnezzar would come back one more time, and this time he was going to destroy it. 
just like Ezekiel foretold in the vivid description before us. You'll notice as this was laid out, you and I have read through verse number 3, and so far that has been so terribly intriguing, this visual illustration. Verse number 4 takes us in a different direction. Not completely so, I might add. Lie thou also upon thy left side, and lay the iniquity of the house of Israel upon it. According to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon it, thou shalt bear their iniquity. You see, the impression deepens. As Ezekiel was carrying this out, he was told to lie on his left side while he was doing this. You can imagine as the people walked by day after day, seeing Ezekiel always lying on his left side. And as he was besieging the city with these battering rams he'd made, and as he was sieging it, how often, I wonder, did they ask him, what are you doing? Did you notice how verse 3 ended? This shall be a sign to the house of Israel. There were lessons in this. For 390 days this continued. You and I know, of course, that's well over a year. As he did this, this is not to suggest that Ezekiel lay literally 24 hours out of every day because later we'll learn he still ate and he still, in fact, did other chores. But for some portion out of every day, he lay on his left side for 390 consecutive days. As you notice the way verse number 4 continues, the message, the last three words are these, bear their iniquity. The whole purpose of this was for the people of God to learn their sins had brought them to the condition described in this passage. Your sins are what's causing Jerusalem soon to be destroyed. Your sins are what will cause that temple to be ransacked. Your sins are what has brought the terribleness of this allotment upon you. Perhaps in light of that, another slide might also be in order. Here a picture of... Ezekiel lying on his left side as he has this encampment, this thing he has made on a tile before him. You'll see the battering ideas and the things there and these men standing over him perhaps perplexed as to what he's doing. This picture again highlights for us the scene of the opening verses of Ezekiel chapter number 4. Beyond that you'll quickly notice though beginning in verse 5. God says, For I have lain upon thee the years of their iniquity. According to the number of the days, 390 days, so shalt thou bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. You'll notice that after Ezekiel had completed this for some 390 days, the next verse says he was to continue it for 40 more days. Verse number 6, When thou hast accomplished them, lie again on thy right side. And thou shalt bear the iniquity of the house of Judah forty days. I might ask you to notice the way in which that stated is slightly different. The first 390 days were related to the children of Israel. That is, that first, the northern kingdom. These latter 40 days were in light of the sins of the southern kingdom. Might we keep in mind then an immediate observation that you and I shall make in just a moment about the fact those two are different dates. It is in light of that, verses 7 and 8 conclude that paragraph by saying, Therefore shalt thou set thy face toward the siege of Jerusalem, and thine arm shall be uncovered, and thou shalt prophesy against it, 
And behold, I will lay bands upon thee, and thou shalt not turn thee from one side to another till thou hast ended the days of thy siege. So while the 390 days were proceeding, he could not lie on his right side. God commanded him not to do so. And also, while lying on his right side, he was not permitted to turn to the left. You and I might see that as extremely intriguing, but the message, of course, would soon become clear to the people before whom he was doing these things. Let me revisit, if we might, and go back just a few slides to those previous ones. As we noted earlier, that takes us up through it basically verse number 9. And now the plot seems to be an extraordinarily thickening matter. Verse 9 says, Take thou also unto thee wheat and barley, and beans and lentils and millet, and fitches, and put them in one vessel, and make thee bread thereof according to the number of the days that thou shalt lie upon thy side. Three hundred and ninety days shalt thou eat thereof. And thy meat which thou shalt eat shall be by weight. Twenty shekels a day from time to time shalt thou eat it. And thou shalt drink also water by measure. The sixth part of an hen from time to time shalt thou drink. May I ask you in light of that to give consideration to these thoughts with me. You'll notice that Jerusalem was going to be physically besieged. Many of these people before whom Ezekiel was preaching did not think that God would ever permit Jerusalem to be destroyed. After all, it's the place he had placed his name, 1 Kings 3, verses 9 and following. It's the very place in which David had been permitted to erect his temple, or rather the, the capital city, and Solomon also built the temple there. However, Ezekiel here, speaking the word of God, straightforwardly said, the armies are coming again, and this time they're going to besiege this place and destroy it. And all along, God said, it's because of your iniquity. You'll notice that as you look at that bottom slide, the bottom statement, it only brings us to this one. Maybe in that, we can easily see the fierceness of God's direction toward these people. They were supposed to have been His people. Those to lift high the banner of His goodness, and they had failed. Clearly, abundantly, and openly, they had failed. Maybe in light of that, what about these lessons for you and me? As clearly as we see it in Ezekiel, is it not still the case that sin is always a bad thing, no matter what its impression may be? And in that consideration, it always brings consequences that are called punishment in the Word of God. The wages of sin is death, Romans 6 verse 23. And in light of that, one final comment. Isn't it interesting that 390 years were stated in relation to Israel, but only 40 in relation to Judah. It is true, admittedly, that Israel had been taken captive a number of years earlier in 722 B.C. Here, Judah was about finally to be taken so utterly, only six years in the future. But doesn't that remind us that so often the wickedness and the evil that had been seen in Israel had not quite so much in fullness and in all of its ways been seen in Judah. That's not to excuse Judah in any sense, but it is to observe God had made a decree. 
And that decree will, in fact, prompt us when we get to chapters 14 to 16 in light of some of these same thoughts again. Might I suggest to you, then, as we give consideration to it, we have looked at these two pictures, but what does that say about this matter beginning in verse number 9 of Ezekiel 4? That statement about this meal that Ezekiel was to prepare. Here he was again in the process of besieging this city that he had made on a clay tablet. As he did that for this long period of time, he's now being told to prepare bread. Did you find the ingredients a bit unusual? When you and I think of making bread, we think of meal, perhaps flour. We think of water or milk or some kind of liquid. How often have you seen bread made with barley or beans or lentils or fitches or millet? And yet this is what was commanded of Ezekiel. What does that mean? Why was these ingredients for bread so terribly unusual? Well, maybe the next few verses detail it. You'll notice in verses 10 and 11, it was especially stated that Ezekiel was to partake of this in a rationed fashion. Notice he was only allowed to take a sixth part of a hen of water a day. From your perspective and mine, that's not much water. A little less than two-thirds of a quart. Furthermore, you'll notice he was told in verse number 10, 20 shekels of bread a day, that's only about 20 ounces. That isn't much. That was God's vivid way of telling the people through Ezekiel, the time is shortly coming when things are going to be rationed. Times are going to be so hard you won't have much food or water to drink. God's picture of a rationed environment. Isn't it interesting beyond that, the scene becomes very disgusting. We shall find that several times in Ezekiel before we're finished. In verse number 13, or rather verse number 12, I would ask you to think carefully about what you're about to hear. And thou shalt eat it as barley cakes, and thou shalt bake it with dung that cometh out of man in their sight. God told Ezekiel, you take this bread that you've just fashioned and you bake it over fuel that has human feces as, as its means of, of provision. He wasn't telling him to make the bread out of that, but to bake it over fire that's burning with human excrement in it. Disgusting? Absolutely. Almost sickening, to be sure. You'll notice Ezekiel had an immediate reply. And the Lord said, verse 13, Even thus shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, whither I drive them. Then said I, hear what Ezekiel had to say in response. Ah, Lord God, behold, my soul hath not been polluted. For from my youth up, even till now, have I not eaten of that which dieth of itself, or is torn in pieces? Neither came there abominable flesh into my mouth. Ezekiel says, but Lord, I have never allowed anything disgusting like what you just described to enter my mouth. Remember, he was a priest. He had all the statements of Leviticus to guide him into the foods that one could eat, into the foods that one could not. You'll notice that God then says, verse 15, Then he said unto me, Lo, I have given thee cow's dung for man's dung. God allows Ezekiel to make a substitution. Okay, so you will not need to use human dung, but I will yet require the animal, the cow's dung. 
And he says, And thou shalt prepare thy bread therewith. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, behold, I will break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they shall eat bread by weight, and with care, and they shall drink water by measure, and with astonishment. At that point, as the chapter closes, may again we ask about the significance of this rather disgusting scene. May I suggest to you that it seems that that is in fact a statement about the defilement. You'll notice the word defile did exactly appear in verse number 13. This was God's picture of the fact they were going to be taken away from that temple that they so highly cherished. That was the place where, in fact, sanctification occurred. That's where God's presence was. That's where the priest would offer the sacrifices God had made. This apparently was a dramatic description. You are going to be taken away from this place. Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. There will be no sanctification. You're not going to be near this temple. You're not going to have opportunity. And so this measurement of dung and the opportunity to think about what that suggested seems to have meant more to the spiritual condition than it did their physical one. As we learn in the books of Ezekiel and also Nehemiah, so often the captives actually had physically matters rather good. You'll notice this portrayed a spiritual condition far worse than they could ever have imagined. May I use that to ponder a moment with each of us? Isn't it still true that our spiritual condition is of far greater importance than our physical? If we pass from this life, even if life is unpleasant and even if it brings its discomforts, if we're right with the Lord, are we not able to leave here dying in the Lord and going home to glory and rest? But if we leave here, even if things have been well, wealthy, prosperous, a table full of things like the rich man had in Luke 16, of what benefit is it if we die and do not know the Lord? That seemingly is God's message to these ancient people. They needed to repent. We'll have to learn later if they did or not. But for now, as we close that chapter and turn to the next one, you see that God's judgment is portrayed yet again as we come to this fifth chapter of the book of Ezekiel. May I ask you to notice again that the lesson is very much an illustration. It has to do with a haircut, oddly enough. Verse 1, And thou, son of man, take thee a sharp knife, take thee a barber's razor, and cause it to pass upon thine head. And upon thy beard, then take thee balances to weigh and divide the hair. Thou shalt burn with fire a third part in the midst of the city when the days of the siege are fulfilled. And thou shalt take a third part and smite about it with a knife. And a third part thou shalt scatter in the wind, and I will draw out a sword after them. Thou shalt also take therefore a few in number and bind them in thy skirts. Then take of them again and cast them into the midst of the fire and burn them in the fire. For thereof shall a fire come forth unto all the house of Israel. That isn't nearly the end of the haircut, I might add, but let's pause there and at least ponder. You can well imagine, as you and I remember, the priests typically had a full face of, of, of hair. They didn't trim their hair that often. Often their hair was very thick and flowing, as many Jews still are today. God here told Ezekiel something very strange to him. You take a barber's razor and you take a sword and you cut your hair and you cut that hair, at least much of it, off your face. 
but he wasn't finished. He said, you take that hair and you weigh it carefully because you've got to divide it into three equal parts. As he did so, he quickly identifies what was to be done. A third of it, you burn it in that city you've just built on that tablet. He goes on to say also in verse number 2, you take a sword and you chop another third of it. The Hebrew, I might add, is slightly different than the suggestion of verse 2. The King James seems to suggest you smite around it. The Hebrew seems to suggest you literally smite it. You cut those hairs, you chop at them, you beat at them. A third of it was to be done that way. The other third you scatter to the wind. And we'll learn in a moment there was actually a few additional pieces about that last third. But can you imagine again the individuals watching Ezekiel do this? What is that man doing? He has cut his hair and he's weighed it carefully. And he has precisely and very directly done with those parts the things we've just watched. Why? You'll notice verse number 12 will explain. A third part of thee shall die with a pestilence, and with famine shall they be consumed in the midst of thee. A third of the people were going to die. They were exactly going to die by virtue of the fact they would not escape Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar came. He goes on to say, A third part shall fall by the sword round about thee. Notice the phrase round about. They were going to start to get out of the city, but... Their pursuers would catch up to them and kill them right outside the city of Jerusalem. Two-thirds of the people were going to die that way. Then he goes on to say, I will scatter a third part to all the winds. Some of them would escape. They'd flee to surrounding countries. They would, in fact, be hauled off captive and thus live in Babylon. But some would escape. What a terrible picture that these captives must have heard. You mean our kinsmen, our folks still left, are going to suffer that fate? God through Ezekiel said, yes. Verse 13, Thus shall mine anger be accomplished, and I will cause my fury to rest upon them, and I will be comforted. And they shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it in my zeal when I have accomplished my fury in them. We get an impression of a God who was, quite frankly, fed up with her sin. He had been patient. He had been long-suffering. He had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet to urge them to repent, to hear the message from heaven, to straighten their matters up, and they had not. You'll notice we skipped a few verses in between, and that's the ones that Brother Vestal read earlier tonight in our hearing. I hope that each of us can hear again the great statements made. Thus saith the Lord God, this is Jerusalem. God said that. This is what's going to happen to Jerusalem. He goes on to say, in verse 5, I have set it in the midst of the nations and countries that are round about her. God had intended for Jerusalem to be a pristine city set on a hill. All the surrounding nations should have been able to look at her and appreciate her righteousness, her godliness, and the God of heaven was in her. But that's not what the people saw. Verse 6 says, She hath changed my judgments. She took my will and twisted it to do what she wanted. She took what I had proclaimed and what I had set forth in my laws, my judgments and statutes, and did what she wanted. 
Does that sound like the human family today? What God has said relative to His church, the church, you and I as Christians ought too to be a city set on a hill, Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. It should be, oughtn't it, that when they see our good works, they should be able to glorify the God of heaven. And yet so often men have taken God's word and perverted it, twisted it, changed it to suit their own desires. Notice, how did God react to Jerusalem for doing that? Did he excuse it, ignore it, neglect it? Look at the next verse. Verse 7, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, because ye multiplied more than the nations that are round about you, and have not walked in my statutes, neither have kept my judgment, neither have done according to the judgments of the nations that are round about you. Therefore thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, am against thee. And will execute judgments in the midst of thee in the sight of the nations. And I will do to thee with that which I have not done, and whereunto I will not do any more the like. God says, Jerusalem, I'm going to do to you what I have never done to any city on earth up to this time. And what's more, I will never do anything like this quite like it again. Is that not a judgment from God? The people, you see, of the ancient nations of Judah and Israel were to realize what was coming on them by Babylon was not just happenstantial warfare nation among nation. It was a judgment from God. May I say that as we then come to verse number 10, we did notice some disgusting things in the previous chapter. This probably would fit pretty close to it. Therefore the fathers shall eat the sons in the midst of thee, and the sons shall eat their fathers, and I will execute judgments in thee, and the whole remnant of thee will I scatter into all the winds. Cannibalism. The people of Israel, the people of Judah, ultimately were going to sink so low due to their rebellion against God, even cannibalism was going to be taking place among them. It had already taken place prior in 2 Kings 6, it's going to take place again. I entitled the lesson, God's Fierce Judgment. I hope by now the reason I chose that title is evident. Our God means business. And He is a God that does enact judgment. The human family will not be allowed to do what it wants indefinitely. Rome fell eventually in 476 A.D. The ancient Grecian Empire fell the Persians, the Medes, and all of them failed because God wasn't with them. Could that happen to America? Without doubt it could. Could it happen to any other nation? Without doubt it could. Any nation that turns its back upon God is setting itself up to receive His wrath. In Proverbs 14.34 we read, Righteousness exalteth the nation, but sin is of reproach to any people. The people of Israel, the people of Judah... We're receiving as a result of all of that, that which we've read so far in Ezekiel chapters 4 and 5. As you come to those scenes, may I suggest that that does bring us to a final consideration. Chapters 6 and 7, quite frankly, go very closely together. The details housed in them amplify what we've seen in chapters 4 and 5. There really is no more picturesque matter in these two chapters, but it's verse after verse detailing the specifics of how God was going to bring these judgments upon them. And so I would invite you to notice in the first seven verses of Ezekiel chapter 6, 
even the nation, even the land was to cry out in recognition of the sinfulness of the people. The mountains, the rivers. But you'll notice in it, it was all because on that occasion of their idolatry. One of the main sins in which Israel and Judah had engaged was the very sin of idolatry. Making for themselves idols, worshiping under every green tree, as Jeremiah so often would say it. And we notice here, all of those idols are going to be destroyed. And all of those groves and all of those places where they were assembling on the high hills, God says, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to destroy it. And when these enemy nations come and destroy Jerusalem, that's going to be a part of the destruction. As you can well tell, he quickly brings to bear in verse number 8 a ray of hope. May we never ever forget that as surely as God is a God of judgment, He is also a God of hope for those wise enough to hear carefully the message He's given and to bend their will to follow the God of heaven. And so too it is here. There's a key word that occurs, and we shall see it again, so I'm reserving most of these thoughts for a later lesson. But there is that fifth word of verse number 8, the word remnant. God wasn't going to destroy every single Jew, every single Israelite, because after all, He needs the bloodline preserved so Jesus Christ can ultimately come to this planet. As he saves that bloodline, he says, I'm going to save a remnant. Later, when we get to chapter 36, we'll learn much more about that remnant. But for now, can't we be so thankful that our God is a God of justice? He does punish those that are guilty. But to those that are innocent, like Noah was, Noah built the ark and saved, of course, the human family. That remnant will bring into the world by far the greatest one of all, Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And you and I today still benefit from the fact He came. Can't we be thankful for Ezekiel's message of the remnant? It is in that line that we notice that verse 11 of that chapter, however, turns us back to the scene of God's judgment. Smite with thine hand and stamp with thy foot and say, Alas, for all the evil abominations of the house of Israel, for they shall fall by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. That phrase occurs a number of times in this book. God was going to bring sword, famine, and pestilence against His own people because of their sin. Oh, how sweetly the church must remain pure today. We don't want to be engrossed in sin or God won't accept us either. But if we are His children and we follow just like the remnant did, the grandeur and greatness we too shall of course sweetly know that eternal glory that awaits the righteous. It is in that regard that chapter 7 hastily finishes our consideration. As one more time, God says in verse 4, Mine eye shall not spare. This people had earned the punishment they were about to receive. They had, you remember, for the 390 years, the northern kingdom, each day that Ezekiel did that represented a year, for 390 years particularly, they had been engrossed in iniquity and sin, and God had put up with it for nearly 400 years, and enough was enough. You'll notice that as all that comes to the character of this chapter, one final thought, and then the lesson will be yours. You'll notice in verses 23 and following, God says one more thing that had a visual aspect to it. Make a chain, God told Ezekiel. 
Make a chain, for the land is full of bloody crimes, and the city is full of violence. Wherefore, I will bring the worst of the heathen, and they shall possess their houses. I will also make the pomp of the strong to cease, and their holy places shall be defiled. You'll notice God said, make a chain, Ezekiel. And that is to be a visual illustration of the fact I'm going to bind this people in a place that they are not happy with. And they're not going to be able to just go about as they would choose. And did you notice all of this place they now treasure, I'm going to let the heathen come and have it. That is what happened to Jerusalem, wasn't it? Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came and God's people were forced to leave. The Babylonians took it over. They're the ones that were dwelling in those fine houses. And they're the ones dwelling in all those places. God said, that's going to be a mission and a lesson they should remember. I'm the one gave it to them and they didn't honor my gift. May we today honor the gifts that God has given us. On our next occasion, we'll take up chapters 8 through 11. As we look at Ezekiel and learn one more time about the judgment of God, and he will show it here from a different angle and from a different perspective. Maybe one more picture. Here is a picture maybe you and I can imagine. By this time, we see the 390 days and the 40 days ended. Ezekiel is standing trying to encourage one of his fellow individuals. Don't lose sight of the message of God. Repent. Turn to the God of heaven. You be a number amongst the remnant. Don't be numbered amongst those that are rebellious and adamant in heart. May you and I also give thought to being a person not unlike that which would have been the remnant. With that, let's conclude our lesson this way. We have seen in these four chapters the message of God's fierce judgment. Judgment not brought about accidentally. Judgment not brought about happenstantially. But judgment brought about because of the justice of God toward the sinfulness of Israel and Judah. Be it the tile, be it that rather disgusting scene of the bread, be it the matter touching the haircut, be the matter touching the chain. All of it has been a singular message. God is a God of justice and judgment. And His people deserved what they were about to get. May we today be much wiser than most of them. May we not be adamant in heart. May we not be a heart rebellious against God. May we not be those of whom God had told Ezekiel, they won't hear thee by and large. I know tonight I speak to those who are interested in hearing the Lord, but may we always be of that mindset and may we encourage those of whom we may influence to be the same. We have many more lessons to learn in Ezekiel. As we look at them, we so often will see matters that encourage us today to think very soberly, righteously, and godly, to borrow the wording of Titus 2 verse 12. This very evening as we close the lesson, I would ask that if you're not a member faithfully of the body of Christ, you realize that the remnant will ultimately be one of the Old Testament ways to picture the blessedness of those receiving the salvation of God. Tonight, are you in a position to receive that salvation? Is your name in the Lamb's book of life to borrow the wording of Revelation 20? If it's not, please, with urgency, think about this very evening and this very moment. You need to respond to the gospel invitation. You are commanded to believe Jesus to be the Son of God, to repent of your sins, to confess in an audible way your, your belief in Him as the Son of God, and to be baptized. 
If we could assist you in that way tonight, we would be delighted to do so. If you were at one time a faithful Christian but are not now, you then would be numbered amongst either that third that's destroyed by fire, that third that's destroyed, of course, by the smiting. But why not put yourself into the remnant? You could do that. You need to come back to your first love, Revelation 2.5. And if we could pray on your behalf in a public way this evening, we'd be delighted to do it. If we can help you in either of those ways, don't delay another moment, but why not come while together we stand and while we sing?